we've developed these markets around scarcity pricing, thinking if prices go up, people will invest, but politicians hate scarcity pricing. And so we can't really say, and, and the prices would have to, right, when you've got, again, wind and solar and rooftop, you know, and demand is going down, you couldn't get a scarcity price that would be sufficient for most people to invest. So we have to think about different mechanisms to make it happen. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Fedderson co-founder and chief executive of Aurora. And today's discussion, I'm really looking forward to. I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, I'll be speaking with the CEO of the system operator of one of the world's longest power grids. She is a former chair of the New York Department of Public Service, and she's soon to take up a newly created leadership role at X which is the Moonshot Factory, part of the Alphabet Group, which is, of course, the parent of Google, uh, moving to California uh, and and leading uh, some of their work in the energy space. My guest on the show is Audrey Zebelman, current CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator. Welcome, Audrey. Hi, John. Uh, excellent. And might I add, I mean, it's been a big week with your departure, um, and I think more, more obviously to come, but uh, the last three or four years that you've been at AEMO, I think it's been a great case study in how to shake up uh, and move an organisation in a different direction. So hopefully we'll have a chance to dig into some of that uh, in the discussion. Thank you, and I'm really glad to be here. It'll be, um, I wish we could see each other in person. In the COVID times, it's getting harder and harder, but it's, it's terrific to talk to you. Exactly. Melbourne is on my, on my agenda, but I suspect I won't make it back by the, by the time you, you, you leave at the end of the year. Um, can you just describe for, for all of our listeners, particularly the ones that aren't Australian, what is the role of AEMO? Sure. So AEMO is the grid operator and uh, planner and market operator for Australia. Uh, for listeners in, in the UK, it's a system operator. Diff- unlike um, you know, the many in the European model where you might have the system operator and the owner, we're more like now the new national grid operator where the operator is a separate entity. Um, very similar to what we see in the US when you have the independent system operators or regional trans- transmission organizations. That's, that's AEMO. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and the, the other part, so as I say, you're, you're, you're stepping off now. The other useful context would be just to talk briefly about X. What is it that X does broadly? It's not, obviously nothing to do with the search engine Google apart from part of the same group. It, just in broad terms, what is, what is X's focus areas? Well, well, X is a research and development arm of Alphabet. And the focus is, uh, it's called X and the Moonshot Factory and Moonshot means that what we're looking at is the world's hardest problems, taking a look at how do you make radical solutions, but also build companies around that so that they're sustainable. And um, for me, you know, coming from this industry, and we could probably talk about this more, but the opportunity to be part of a team that's looking at 
solving the hardest problems in uh, energy so that we can have reliable, affordable, secure energy and decarbonized is exactly the type of certainly challenge I'd like to get involved in. And this X is, is really the company to do it. So I'm just delighted to be part of the team. Mm. And it's, I, I mean, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to, to say, look, the reason we've made the progress, my, my view at least, the reason we've made the progress we have on the energy transition is technological advancement. And pol- policy's played a big role, but it's just so much easier if solar panels are a tenth of the cost they used to be and storage is. Is it, in terms of, and obviously it's very early days, what do you see as the big technological challenges for the, for the sector in general? Right, and this, and this is really coming out of the AEMO experience. And, um, and, and where I see the, the, really the Achilles heel if we're talking about decarbonization, and that's the fact that we're moving from a power sector that where you had a lot of controllable, dispatchable generation the fuel was manageable, you could store it, and to one that depends on weather as your largest fuel resource. We see this in AEMO every day, in fact, and so there's that issue. Plus you're going from hundreds of devices to millions and billions of devices, and you're not gonna be able to manage a power system in the way that we've always managed power system where you had a command and control approach but rather we do need to be looking at machine learning. We have to be looking at AI. We have to be looking at uh, self-healing grids. We have to think about the amount of data and the speed of data that we're gonna have to be able to manage in, a, in an efficient way. And so, the, you know, I'd add, one I've learned in Australia is that as, as I see the nature of the problem, it's, for example, in Western Australia, I was just talking to my team today, it's a mild, nice day. We love mild, nice days. That never used to be a problem in the power system. But when you have a whole lot of rooftop solar and that mild, nice day also has some cloud cover or very low demand, suddenly that becomes a system challenge. And Mm -hmm. so understanding these things and being able to manage them but doing it in an efficient way is now becoming a data issue. The way I think about it is, We've, we've got all these free electrons that are coming out of renewables, which is wonderful. But to organize them, we need a lot more better information. And, and those are the big challenges that, that I'm hoping we'll, we'll you know, I'll have a part in solving. Interesting. And, and I'd like to, so I, I suppose a big part of, what, of that as well is the role of prices and the role of market. You know, you train an algorithm, but it needs to be optimizing against something and it would be great at the end just to just to pick up the other other bit of it you know great algorithm but what what is the role of prices and markets you see going forward but i'll shelve that for now because i, I want to okay. get into a, a few I'm, I'm sure you're ready to jump on that one i want to get into a few other things just one final point on on um on the on the move what is it you think you'll miss most about the australian lifestyle oh well there's first of all i will miss the the dear friends I have and here and the uh, certainly my friends at AEMO and, and in the industry. And, you know, the, I, I, the Australians are, um, com, you know, they're extremely uh, friendly. It's like being part of a big family. It's really one of the mm-hmm. major differences I find in difference in the U.S. and Australia is that, you know, it's because it's a smaller country and a position like mine in the U.S., right, nobody would know about it. Mm-hmm. But in Australia, it's become a major issue. And, and 
it is a major energy is a major issue but it's a small community and and the amount of affection that i have felt here has just been overwhelming and i and i guess i will miss the genuineness the openness and the feeling that because it uh you know is a relatively small country that people can reach out and touch each other and so well like a family we might fight a lot but you're there for each other that the concept of mate really means something here and i and i will miss that well, yeah, interesting and, and well put. I, I, find, Audrey, I find it slightly hard to believe that people won't know wh- wh- who, who you are in the US. So I think in the Australian <laughs> context, at least, you've played, a, the, the, you know, you've played a pretty big role in kind of stamping your mark on things as, as well in that role. Uh, so, so I think that's partly about you then, rather than about Australians too. Well, I had a um, great team. Yeah. Um, so, so can I, so can we talk a bit about your journey to where you are now? I mean, it's a fascinating background. I mean, first of all, you're a lawyer. Um, what made you think the power sector was a good place for a lawyer to be? I mean, and, and I suppose my context here is, I think traditionally, particularly pre-privatisation, it was a place for engineers. It was a place for you know tech, technical people in the engineering sense of the word. Why did you go as a lawyer? Well, I mean, for me, one of the reasons I went into law initially, it was, it was actually the, my bet it was came out of my experience as a Peace Corps volunteer in, in Africa where I, I really wanted to feel like I was part of the community. And ironically, while it was great being an expat and great doing uh, the work that we did in the Peace Corps, I mm. felt a bit like a voyeur and I felt like it was, in, and I mm-hmm. decided at a young age, I was just 20 at the time, that I, I wanted to be part of a community and I didn't, and I didn't, uh, wasn't good enough in the sciences to go to be a doctor and so I became a lawyer because I lacked imagination. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else. And um, and that but that carried with me. And so I had an I was practicing law, a private practice, and had an opportunity to join the attorney general in Minnesota and they assigned me to the uh, department that represented uh, the state in matters involving regulated monopolies and what became of interest to me was was the fact that if you do your job well you can you have this amazing ability to have a, po- a positive impact on individuals and then secondly you know learning about what it means when you have these essential services whether it's water or telecom or gas or heating electricity internet uh, they, nowadays, they, they, probably. the internet they underpin life and mm. and it has to be and that's what good government's about is providing these basics so that was a little bit of my peace corps days of sort of the rent recognizing that you have these basic values uh life you know of life or things that you have to do well in order to keep decent lifestyle so that was important and then the complexity of it where where in energy as a lawyer what I found, and I always you know, tell people, you, you have this intersection of one, it's really important. Secondly, uh, it's, it involves economics, it involves engineering, it involves finances, it is, involves environmental issues. And, um, and so as a, con- as a consequence, you, you have to be able to think in a systems way and recognize there are multiple systems. And uh, it so it becomes, my journey, it's been always fascinating and you know certainly what's been amazing is how the speed of change has has uh ramped up in the last decade Mm. particularly in australia yeah interesting interesting um 
Is there, so, so this next one's maybe a difficult question. I'm not sure. Um, so at least as an outsider looking into the Australian power system over the last three or four years, I, my, my sense, and others may have totally different views here, is that you, your time has been characterised by coalition building, but also not being afraid to have a difficult conversation about an important topic. And I was watching, I mean, I was watching the, so I watched the US presidential debate recently, the first one. It was really acrimonious. Debate, um, debate, it, debate is a gratuitous <laughs> term. It was, it was like a gr grudge match on um, the World Wrestling Association. It was a bit, was a bit like that. Um, so it was, and it, re it reminded me a little bit of the debate, the climate change debate in Australia as well as, as a sort of, you know, ideological, a bit ideological and frankly just, you know, people playing the man, you know, we, at the moment we're having a debate in Australia about gas-led recovery versus renewables-led recovery, which is an end of a, end of a long series of these types of, types of debates that I think go beyond the economics and the maths. So, so the question is, and I said it was a tough one, how do you think about communicating the complexity of the transition? So there's this super complicated stuff when you're faced by a very polarized kind of acrimonious public sphere and it's, Europe is very different. Uh, you know, you have bipartisan support for going hard on decarbonization and parties trying to outdo it. So it is a, it's a different, it's a different area. You've obviously, I imagine you've thought hard about it. How, yeah. What do you, what's your philosophy on how to engage in that sort of complicated debate? Well, I think the, for me, the, you know, the advantage I, I have in my role here and the time we're in in Australia is that the, the reality is coal's retiring. It's not a aim of policy that coal should retire. The reality is we have old coal plants and they're going to have to retire and they have to be replaced. The second reality is in Australia, because of the geography and the climate, wind and solar, and particularly because of how the costs have fallen, are the cheapest resource. They, you know, it's a great, great opportunity. And with falling cost of storage and availability of, of hydro, uh, of, of, of pumped hydro and, uh, uh, and we, you know, we have the ability to start looking at and talking about replacing, uh, retiring coal with a cheaper resource. So that's where I've mm -hmm. been focused. And I think the other aspect that's changed in Australia, which is really a tipping point that I, I think as we talk about it, you know, I, I feel like I'm not I'm never stressing it enough, is the individual appetite for rooftop solar. I mean, we are at one in three mm. of solar on the roof. It's becoming as common as a you know, car in a garage. It's not a vanity play. It's not because you have a political feeling. In fact, I have plenty of people who are not particularly considered some environmentalists who have solar on the roof because it makes economic sense to them. And, mm. and as a result, we're seeing a very rapid and massive change of the power system to one that is distributed that you, where you have challenges on, on mild days as well as hot days. And that you're certainly never going to tell the public, you know, that, well, yeah, I know your neighbor has solar on their roof, but, you know, you were too late in the game, so you're just going to have to pay for the grid. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not going to happen. No. So we have to change. We have this urgency mm. to change and, and to think about this in a very different way. So I think, uh, you know, by focusing on 
consumer, the need to really look at the, how to minimize the bill, recognizing yeah. that we have a lot of capital we have to spend, and we have to do it in a really efficient way, otherwise we're going to hurt the consumer, yeah. has allowed me to kind of talk about this in, a, in an evidentiary basis as opposed to a, pol, a you know, policy yeah. basis. Interesting. With the, with the one policy yeah. being, it's a, an essential service, and we we have an op, we have we we have an obligation to get it right for consumers. Interesting. Yeah, and I, I we had I had um, Paul Simshauser on the show recently, and it was sort yeah. of the the consensus that you know, you cannot do if the lights are going out, it's impossible to do any sort of sensible policy. Uh, but 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 if they're not right. going out, then. Um, it, 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 yeah, it sounds like the commitment to evidence and economics has worked has worked for you at least uh, in, in your it, stand. Yeah, it has, and and well, it has, and it's you know, and is the our role to to look at that, and and then it, I think the other thing is um, you're in this industry long enough, you you realize that it's not the complexity of people want they it, people basically want the lights to stay on they want it to be affordable and they want us to solve the complexity for them and that's the other piece that we really very much have to do yeah yes um so just one other question i have on your on your journey and then i want to talk about aemo and your in your time there you've mm -hmm. Uh, a little bit on you. I mean, it's not uncommon, but you've moved between the private sector and the public sector quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose, how do you view the role of a leader in the two different organisations? Do, do you think it's, is it, a, is, it a, is it different? I mean, is, is the distinction between public and private a false one? Um, and, and actually, there are many other defining characteristics. Well, you know, I, I do, you know, as I, I think about this, I mean, I, I do believe that I am who I am. So I'm the same person, whatever the role is. But I am driven by a singular passion, which is really thinking about the importance of making sure that in this sector, we, we are uh, taking advantage of the technolo technological change and, and focused on driving benefit. But also, the, my interest is in prodding the old way of thinking about things and you know that's that's been true of my role when i was uh in government but also it was true of my role when i was at excel energy i was i was the person responsible for renewables for developing markets for really pushing the organization to do things differently and all in the sense of you you can't you can't sort of be a stagnant old monopoly and uh, expect to survive when everything else around you is changing. And so um, so I, I guess I've always played this agitator bit role yeah. of like, well, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute, we can't, no, that, that doesn't work anymore, you know, and asking why. And I think that, but going back to being a lawyer, I guess, you know, my, my legal training and uh, has always put me in this bit of wanting to, being wanting to challenge and uh, not, accepting just well that's because you know it's the way we've done it so therefore it's the way to do it and i think mm. that that's why i've always been attracted to opportunities like aemo when you know and same thing in new york the only reason i went to new york is because the governor's office said to me richard kaufman who was the governor's policies are said look he he wants to change things up and i thought well working for a governor who Andrew Cuomo, who a lot yeah. of people now know about him, uh, who really was committed to making it better and changing things, 
was that the attraction so it's it's just for that is why why sit okay. still when you can do something yeah okay so the ability to be close to influence and to to shake things up has, right. has, has been a common thing and, I, and people outside australia won't necessarily know that but i think like if you ask anyone who knows the australian power market they would say you, you know you, audrey was a was a sort of a whirlwind that hit australia you know four four years ago and and, and you know started tearing up tearing up sort of sacred so, you know, sacred beliefs and, and all sorts of things uh, to, to, to move things forward, at least is, is, a, is a common theme, I think. Um, so can we move to AEMO? So one, so one thing I've, one, one thought is it's, you know, the, the ISP, the integrated system plan, which is this long-term view, I think will be one of your legacies there. And just more generally, it feels like an organisation that has become more transparent, probably become more consultative, I would say. Was that, was that a deliberate strategy by you or is it just a consequence of some other things you wanted to do? And the second question on that is, what do you think the impact of that broader consultative, transparent approach has been? Well, I, I think um, it was something I, you know, was deliberate and was something the board chair, Drew Clark and I both you know, really believe strongly in. And, and it's some, and something I, I also saw through uh, my work you know at PJM which was more collaborative and uh, and then New York again so here here's the the issue we saw of a with aemo there were problems that the op, that the organization was seeing but they didn't feel like they were empowered to uh, be effectively aggressive and loud about these issues and as a result, um, when bad things happened, you know, because they're the ones who are operating it, they they end up looking yeah. like, well, why didn't you tell us? So, so it was very easy for me because I thought it was certainly my job. I, I might, as I told the staff, look, when they when they said, well, you know, this kind of advocacy is unusual. It's not what we've done. I said, look, no, it, people can ignore our advice. Mm. They could tell us we're crazy. They could tell us bad idea. But that doesn't mean we don't have a fiduciary obligation to provide it when we're seeing things and we see mm. challenges and we see the market's not working and we're having to intervene almost every day. That yeah. tells and you guys are in the wrong. hot seat, right? Right. It's, it's right. Sort of, if, you, if you're going to have the responsibility, yeah. uh, it'd be good to have a say. In, and, and you entered after the, or, or just about when yeah. the lights went out in South no, Australia. I, I went, was, yeah, I was there. I arrived after after okay, that in okay. fact the day i arrived um the then energy minister uh, josh Reidenberg, is now the treasurer and the premier of south uh, australia were having an argument on on the news as i was <laughs> I gathering my luggage yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so i kind of was like well this is going to be an interesting <laughs> yeah, there's a good youtube cliff of that as, as as well if you're if you're interested in a frosty okay. interview uh, uh yeah okay. it was it was but <laughs> Look, I, um, I, I think that I think that the organization's up for it. One of the things that uh, I'm really this is a fantastic organization. People join AEMO because they want to make a difference, and they see it as the place where they can make a difference. So, you know, telling, giving them permission to play and to to say, look, we de we need to be clear. We need to do things like the study we did last this past year around the renewable integration study, which is a complement to the ISP that is saying, well, what's it going to take to integrate in renewables at 70% or 80% or 90% in Australia, because it's going to happen sooner than later. And uh, is all about, I think, 
helping really provide the information because if not us, who? Exactly. Is, um, you talk about the you talk about a, a, an overriding characteristic of people at AEMO being they want to make a difference. Is it, and I had Jonathan Brearley on, who's the, the CEO of the regulator in the UK recently, and I asked him, is it about, is it about protecting consumers? Is it about the consumer bill and keeping the lights on? Or is it about decarbonisation uh, and, and enabling the energy transition? If you were to say one or the other of those two kind of defines why someone joins AEMO right now, which one would it be? Oh, I think for most of my staff, it's it's probably the first thing would be they want to be part of the evolution of the sector to be a decarbonized sector. They want to solve these issues. And secondly, they want to do it because they want to help Australia and uh, consumers. So it's it's sort of a both and. They're doing it because they believe in it. They believe it's important and they mm-hmm. believe it's important for Australians. It's, it's very much focused on that. And yeah. Yeah, they they're they're really smart people and they want to work on hard problems yeah yeah it's sort of uh, yeah at least and roar is a, a little bit similar in a sense like i see them a bit as you know two yeah. sides of the same coin right we can do this in a silly we can do the energy transition in a silly way or we can do it in a smart way um yeah. and it's going to cost a lot less if we do it in a smart way uh, well, yeah yeah. You know, but don't you think, I'm sure this is at Aurora too, what's, what's really phenomenal to me, you know, we, and we have a good portion of our uh, people who work at AEMO are, are in their early 30s and 20s, so they're, and they're people entering in the, the energy sector writ broadly now um, because they're passionate about it, they're passionate about the environment. When I started back in 1988, you know, engineers were power system engineers, and this is what they're studied. They're interested in engineering. There mm. wasn't a, um, a passion necessarily about any particular issue. Although I would say, you know, this industry, when you have a, a storm, whether it's a, or bushfire or ice storm is an amazing industry. You know, the way you have people out there um, working, you know, when other people are huddled at home, yeah, they are essentially first responders, and uh, so there is that big public service piece that, that just is in this in the DNA of the energy industry. Yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all of those things. It, it's um, and it's an interesting topic that it's actually come up quite a bit on the podcast of sort of just the volume of really talented people that want to be in this space right yeah. now. And and the flip side of it is, I think you know, companies like Shell, companies like BP. Um, who are, you know, historically fossil fuel, fuel businesses and they're making the transition now in a massive way, some of the announcements and, and some of the pound, the, the dollars that are being directed. And a big part of it is it's just very difficult to attract talent, you know, the best yeah. and the brightest if you're, if you're in the fossil fuel sector. And the flip side I, is, you know, I walk into the Aurora office every day and just go, wow, you're, you're really clever. You know, it's amazing yeah, that's that you're right. here. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think you're right. You know, and I was, I was thinking about this um, a few years ago too. When I, you, when people for a while, when you looked at universities, kids were saying, "Well, what, do you have a sustainability program? Do you have an environmental program?" We probably should have all seen this as a trend because now, when these same people are graduating, they're saying, "Well, I, I don't want to work for a company that's mm. destroying the planet. I want to yeah. work for a company that's doing something good." And there is a 
great thing about this this generation around having a public purpose and i i think that's a wonderful piece i can't wait till they're running things yeah yeah exactly um great so can i just uh, what what power do you wish aemo had but doesn't have <laughs> i love that Reflecting question sorry yeah i love that question <laughs> yeah, yeah. i look i I, I coming out of the U.S. One of the things that I've I've you know I now understand it better. I still don't necessarily agree with it. The determ but there was a decision made for reasons related to the structure of the government, etc., to break up the regulatory process to a regulator, a rules maker, and a market operator, and the difference, and this is where I come from, and I think it's more like Ofgem, right, is that the in the U.S., the FERC will set policy, right? They'll say, we just like they did last week, we need the market to integrate DER. We mm. need it to do A, B, C, D, E, and F. You market des operators, go design that market for us and come yeah. back and tell us what, that you've met what we've asked for. And I and because it's broken up into three, I, f I think that the way it works in Australia has become unnecessarily adversarial yeah. among the three market bodies because it, you know, developing the market design and operating the market, we sh those are just like two sides of the pancake. So I think where the ESB has really been helpful is it's created that forum where we're all together because again, they're very complex issues. You need everyone in the room and it doesn't help just to, to divide it up. I think it made, and it's one of the reasons why I'm, you know, I think Australia should have been doing reform a lot earlier and missed mm. it because it was so controversial. It was like a, you know, who's on top versus what is the customer need discussion. Yeah, and of course the ESB is the um, Electricity Security Board. Security Board. board. Uh, so yeah. that was a new body that was put in place in recognition that there need to be some sort of convening element to get the three separate views consolidated because otherwise we wouldn't make progress. And it's proven to be you know, terrific. We've made a lot yeah. of progress. So I, I would say, yes, I shook things up, but thank goodness I had uh, Dr. Kerry Schott, who was chairing the ESB, to say, okay, we'll get it done. And that yeah. and she has been a it's a, Yeah, and it is, journey. I mean, I, 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 to an extent, like I didn't know what you would say in answer to that question, but I'm also not surprised. From the outside, it felt, it feels to me like there are too many cooks in the kitchen in Australia yeah. in a sense. And then, I mean, it's, and it's odd that the answer is to add another cook into the kitchen, but at least a, a cook within a hierarchy. Well, I think, probably. yeah, I think it, you know, I mean, the, the way I think about it is, um, and this is again, in the, in the U S the, the markets are designed to meet the public interest. And if the regulator feels that the market isn't delivering cost effective electricity, they will say, well, we need to change the market design so it does hit that because that's the goal. And that's because we have the Federal Power Act, which we don't have in Australia. So I understand why it is the way it is, but boy, it was a lot easier you know, when I was at PJM and FERC said, look, you need a market that gets better investment in dispatchable generation, bring one back to us in six months and make sure you collaborate with your members before you bring it back. And that's what we did. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. And then I, I won't get into it, but the the I mean the the the, the federalism and the fe- federal state divide is, yeah. is another of those axes of sort of who's it seems who's actually accountable for these for these yeah. things. Yeah, and makes I it complicated. right. Yeah, so I in the kitchen. and one thing I have learned is it, it's impossible because unless you have the same set of federalism that the approach that was taken in the US doesn't really translate. And, you know, and I, I know in, in the UK, right, Ofgem is essentially like FERC yeah. and, and is able to make a lot of decisions and therefore can be quite efficient. Yeah, rule maker and regulator. And I suppose the other yeah. thing is you've got the, um, we've got a pri- you've got a privately owned system operator. But anyway, we, we might get to this. I actually have an overrated, underrated question for you on this at the, at the end. So we might okay. d- 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 dig into it more there. But that, that YouTube clip we referred to gives a, gives a great one minute summary of the problems with federal state relations. I think <laughs> the, the Frydenberg one. Um, okay, great. Well, just one other thing about your time at EMU. So if, to me, at least in our interactions, it feels like you actually you you focus a lot more on academia and research that's happening in universities than than others would for you know for someone who has to keep the power on minute by minute you seem far more willing to engage in in sort of long term thinking and 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 slightly esoterical debates do you think that's a fair fair summary and and why have you why do you value the the academic world yeah well i think for me the the thinking that needs to go to, go on and and the challenges that we have right now really require um, people with deep understanding not just of the sector but of markets and economics and are creative and are not necessarily wedded to a, uh, a particular model but are wedded to the outcome of driving value back to consumers and so the I thought you know the reason I keep tabs is because of the academic community and the discussions that people are having you know to me uh, i and i don't think we've quite figured it out yet the the market design that is prevalent uh in most places right now where, where they're liberalized markets of using security constrained bid-based dispatch using locational price as the efficient dispatch mm. makes sense when you're really allocating fuel and you're fine, you're trying to decide, you know, what's the cheapest next really BTU fuel that you're really going to dispatch hmm. and, and, you know, taking into account system constraints when you're moving to a system like we're seeing where there is no real marginal cost, you have to really rethink about, well, how do you get the right investment? And how and what are what are you going to be valuing? Which is things that you know we've been talking about essential services and things like that, and and that the dispatch has to co-optimize really the res- the next resource that provides the cheapest energy, but also the support required around essential services, and it's a very different problem to solve than historically and when you have declining price curves for energy you're not going to get that investment unless you really rethink about what how you're going to what you value in the market mm-hmm. so that's why in australia you know we're seeing um government intervention because of fear that the forward price curve isn't sufficient for people to dispatch or to invest in dispatchable generation when they're competing with wind and solar but we need it and yeah. so 
one of the things that the Energy Security Board has said is we do need some sort of resource adequacy mechanism that really looks at how to value dispatchability and firming. And yeah. um, if we don't have that, you, you know, we, we won't get it. And I, I think the other thing that I've, you know, I, I was reading Paul Joskow, um, did yeah. a lot of work last year. Big U.S. And, you know, academic in, in big U, Yeah, U.S. Yeah. at MIT. And, you know, he made the point, which I've witnessed and I totally agree with. We, we developed these markets around scarcity pricing, thinking if prices go up, people will invest. But politicians hate scarcity pricing. No, they can't <laughs> credibly commit to it. hate. Right. Yeah. And so we can't really say, and, and the prices would have to, right, when you've got, again, wind and solar and roof, you know, and demand is going down, it, it's hard, to, it, you couldn't get a scarcity price that would be sufficient for most people to invest. So we have to think about different yeah. mechanisms to make it happen. And, and so the answer to your question, the reason I read the literature is because I'm trying to come up with, well, what yeah. are the ideas? Who's got them? Yeah. We, we really need them. Yeah, the, the, the past ideas, I, I, in some cases, don't, don't work in the future. Could I pick up, right. there's just a couple of things, and it's interesting, on the capacity adequacy point, I mean, they've, you know, capacity markets were, 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 were you know, I, I suspect earliest, earliest trials in the, in the US, and they've stayed right. around in a lot of those markets. Europe is just, you know, dominoes, one after the other, is in, instituting capacity markets as renewables build up. And Australia... You know, I, rec I reckon it's moving, right? So, so, you know, I remember three or four years ago when Alan Finkel was writing his big review, it was sort of the idea of a capacity market was sort of a communist, you know, sort of communist in intervention in the, in, the, in the market. And I think it feels like it's, it's, things are moving in that direction in Australia at least. But the, the other one you talked about was sort of locational pricing. And, I, and the, the, the question I have on that always is this... So there's a couple of big complexities I see in the future. One is, you know, it's totally related to, to what you'll be doing at X is, you know, I need to know when, you know, my toaster has an algorithm in it and needs to know when to turn on and off or my kettle or my, my Tesla or all of these things need to make clever decisions. It's not going to be someone in the set system operator's control room turning my kettle on and off. Um, and at the same time, you know, location does matter and, and power you know, even power a few kilometers apart from each other may have very different values depending on what the network looks like. How are we going to, how are we going to get people building in the right place? And how are we going to get all of these small things turning on and off at the right times? Because I, I totally agree with you. The supply side's getting a lot more, a lot, you know, a lot less rich with a lot of zero marginal cost, but the demand side seems to be getting massively more rich. You know, when do we produce hydrogen with electrolysis? When do we charge a battery? Right. How do you, how do you think about those problems in the context of a, a world in which, as you say, um, you know, the fuel, you know, the fuel price, you know, traditional power plants isn't setting the price. I know it's a massive question, but, but. Um, yeah, I maybe, think, yeah. well, one of the things that I think we have an opportunity to do and, is to say, look, we're, we're getting to a point where you could have prices to devices. And, um, and so you have different market models that, can, that can, can exist, where in fact, instead of uh, buying electricity as a commodity, you can have, which has always been a thought, retailers being providing energy management services and offering you saying to you, right, you will, will, you will pay, we'll yeah. give you a subscription service 
that's you know $15 or $30 a month, that's all you're ever going to see. Yeah. Now, in exchange for that, we, we need, you know, we're going to put in a smart hub in your home and we're going to help manage these devices for you, but we'll work within your comfort zone. We won't turn off your uh, TV in the middle of your favorite show or anything like no, that. No. And, and, and you'll do that. And so I think that the trick is going to be is now that we have the elasticity, right, on the demand side, how do we get the, how do we operate within a operating envelope so that the demand itself at a, at, you know, the demand, the, the load curve is really efficient. And I, you know, that was something that really was the understory of, of Rev in New York was the recognition that if we can get the distribution utility to say, well, we're actually changing your business model. Mm-hmm. Your business model isn't to show us that this is the most efficient capital investment your business model is to figure out how to use, make sure that you first take advantage of resources behind the meter yeah. to drive efficiency, load-based efficiency, and you'll make more money by adding more, you know, basically reducing the wallet chair of electricity yeah. Yeah. rather than putting in capital. And I think that's really going to be, to me, I still think, you know, that now that I see for us now, for example, you know, the in AEMO, what we're seeing in Western Australia and South Australia is the fact that we have abundant solar in the afternoon on mild days. So it's not an extreme weather event that we worry about. We're just worried about mild Sundays yeah. where there's lots of sun and, yeah. and there's a lot of those. And so uh, the question is, how do we manage that? Well, it's telling people you're not going to be able to use your solar when it's, you know, a really nice day mm. is not, it's not an, politically acceptable solution. So we have to start thinking about how do we integrate storage and coupling and keep the demand profile within a efficient uh, envelope. And I think what we need to sort out is, well, is, is that this is, and in New York, we made the decision and said, frankly, prosumers distribution utilities are your customers. And what they need is not electrons. What they need is a service that allows them to manage, to, to make sure they take full advantage of their investments and doing so in a way that actually reduces the price of electricity is your job hmm. as a distribution utility. And that's, hmm. that was the New York model. I don't, I don't, it's not necessarily the only model. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It could happen at any at level, different, but right, someone you could have the, the yeah. retailers can do that. The retailers can say, that's our job. We're going to, we're going to make sure that we help people reduce their price of electricity by providing them other services. So hmm. I, I, but I think we have to get there because I think that's really where the next new frontier is that will be yeah. of advantage, particularly as you know, you know, we're the ironic irony of all this is that when we built the power system in the sixties and seventies, you know, after world war two, it was a period of time of you know, massive electrification and growth. And therefore, we were able to build these power plants, but not see massive increases in bills because the demand was increasing. We're using regulated monopolies. Now that we're replacing these resources in a market environment and demand is not growing, in fact, it's becoming more efficient, then the need to do things with as much as cost effectively as possible is critical. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and and as I say, for me, the I mean, it could be X that's optimizing. I mean, I mean, it need not be your your net. You know, you guys might. Yeah, come I'm not up talking about X because, but yeah. I mean, but we do need to. It it is a question of 
how how do we use productivity gains but do it in such a way that's an invisible to the consumer doesn't isn't disruptive we're not talking about having consumers day trade electricity no right but no but it is creating that that, you know those hubs and and there are a lot of people looking at to do things like that yeah could i change change the, the the topic and ask you about gender in the energy sector so i you know at least every sector I know of in the world was heavily male dominated. Maybe that was a consequence of, you know, the, the, the focus on engineering that you talked about. Had we had more lawyers in the seventies and eighties, maybe it would be a less male dominated industry. Now it looks like Australia is doing better than most. You talked about Kerry shot at ESB, Claire Savage lived there at, um, at the regulator Caterna energy Australia. You know, a lot of these, you know, reassuring a lot of these senior positions are women in Australia. Do you think, do you think we're there now on gender, you know, gender balance in the energy sector, or do you still see barriers that we need to overcome? Well, I mean, there's two pieces of the, to the answer to to the traditional aspects of the sector. We're talking about engineering. Um, we're still seeing that there's a lag uh, in in the amount of qualified women who are available to take positions at AEMO. We we work on that. Um, and try to make it the, the workplace a, a place where women can, you know, can thrive. And the other piece, though, that we're seeing is a lot of these, a lot of our women engineers are coming out of um, Asian countries, Middle Eastern countries. And so we also need to think about not just gender diversity, but cultural diversity to make sure that we're, we're recognizing the whole person and address all of those things and I think that's really important for a couple of reasons one is your as you've noted it's a, it's very an attractive place to work now and so AEMO is competing with a lot of different companies and in, in getting the best of the best so we want to have a we want to make sure that the workplace is one where people want to come into work and and recognizing that uh, there's opportunity and recognizing that for women in particular um, still when they're starting a career and raising a family you need to create a workplace that's that allows for both so that's really important but but the other is you know full the full stop you you, we we want the diversity of thinking both around gender and and as well as cultural backgrounds and everything else and so um, part of the advantage we have now in the sector is we're seeing that because things like data science can behave, you know, uh, behavior of individuals, uh, things like economics, where there are more women are just as valuable as, as pure power engineering. So we're able to attract women in those areas where there's just more professionals entering the market. So it's um, getting better and, you know, you'll see it. I mean, I think uh, Claire Savage is an economist, Carrie's an econ- economist, mathematician. Yeah. yeah, I'm a lawyer. So none of us, and Maren York is the head of uh, the Australian Energy Market Commission, which is the rules maker. She's the um, interim chair, is a is an engineer. So, but for the most part, I still think that we're, we're just, the next generation of women will, uh, coming out of schools, we'll see more in the STEM, and I think that's important. But can I just, I'll just go on on this. You know, when I entered law school way, way back when, um, I think we were 30%, which was the most that people had ever seen. Um, and then by the time I graduated, it was up to 40, and now I think most, you know, majority of women um, 
or a lot of law schools, at least half and usually more are women. Yeah. And so I, I do think it, it changes over time. And, you know, thank goodness we had trailblazers like Ruth Bader Ginsburg to yeah. inspire all of us. Yeah. And we have coming up on the show, we have Nora Mead Brownell, who was a FERC commissioner. Uh, yes. And not, not very really early on. Yeah. A very, po- very powerful FERC commissioner. Terrific. So she'll, she'll be on in a week or two, which, so, uh, which is another, another good example of, of that. But I mean, it is one thing that strikes me is, you know, it, that, that sort of, you know, intakes in law courses and, and, you know, graduate programs, it does take a long time. Uh, and yes. I, you know, I think there is an impatience, uh, quite rightly, an impatience around change. So um, I think I, my sense is it's going to be a tension. Yeah, you know, we you know we want to move fast, and and just some of these processes right. are generational ones. And I think you have to commit to it. I mean, what we're doing at AEMO is we're really working on a diversity where it is saying, look, it's not going to happen by accident. You you really yeah. have to pay attention. You got to put the work in, and you have to decide it's important. And it's important for the benefit of the organization they're better but it's important just full stop it's important it's just we should our 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 institutions our leadership should reflect the people we are and when it's it's out of balance then you you know you you're not able to be as good a leader yeah indeed excellent so i want to conclude um by asking you about a couple of concepts in the in the energy system um and ask you if you think they're overrated or underrated and you shouldn't feel compelled to answer with more than a one word answer which is over overrated or underrated so let me let me start um first concept is the importance of who owns the system operator so in australia we've got essentially a publicly owned um it's complicated, but essentially publicly owned. In, in, in Europe, often we have privately owned. Do you think the importance of who owns the system operator, public or private, is overrated or underrated? I think it's overrated. Okay. Um, second, the role of markets and prices, I suppose, in the energy transition. Do you think markets and prices are overrated or underrated? I think underrated. Okay. In- very interesting. Um, uh, and then, um, I would, so, so a final one, we talked about the U S, um, a final one, just, just as an outsider of the U S markets, the importance of U S federal government for U S electricity policy. And I suppose that's relevant with the election coming up. Um, uh, do do you think the federal government is the federal government's influence on U S energy policy is overrated or underrated? That's a that's a really hard question. <laughs> so can can I tell not a it's it's both and it's neither. Yeah, you know. So here's here's the problem we have is that the federal government, when it comes to you know, mass policy, um, hasn't done a very good job. Uh, but the states in the U.S. have done a really good job. But the question is, could we've been further along had we had a more functional federal policy? And I would think absolutely yes. Okay. Very good. I, the overrated, they're not meant to open a can of worms. That one may, may have, I won't, yeah. but we won't get into it because of time. Um, so that's a natural time to finish. Um, so delighted, uh, really delighted to catch up, Audrey, with you before you step off at AEMO uh, and really excited to see what happens next for you. So Audrey Zeeman, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, John. That was John Federson, Aurora's co-founder and chief executive, talking to Audrey Zebelman, CEO of the Australian Energy Market Operator. 
Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.